1: Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Four games, one thing to talk about. So there was a genuine feeling that Argentina might slip out of this World Cup until two touches from Lionel Messi. Their victory finished off with a stunner from Enzo Fernandez. That win, along with Poland's against-the-run-of-play victory, means everyone can still qualify from Group C as Robert Lewandowski breaks his World Cup-scoring duck as the Poles edge out the entertaining Saudis. A lot still to play for in Group D. Mbappe sends France through with the help of their latest pivot, Antoine Griezmann. But any one of the other three can join them, including us, Australia, first neighbours returns, and now the Socceroos get their third ever win at a World Cup. What a place. I hope to live there someday. As always, we'll answer your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Barry Glendening, hello. Hello. Hello, Lars Sividsson. Hi, Max. Hello, Philippe O'Claire. Bonsoir. Bonsoir <laughs> and uh, hola cómo estás from Buenos Aires, Marcela Mora y Araujo, How are you?
3: Hola, we are good here.
2: Only just. Let's start with Argentina-Mexico. You were very philosophical, Marcela, after that defeat to Saudi Arabia. I wonder if you were the same at half time in this game.
3: No, absolutely not. The philosophical uh, trait diminished over the past few days in this country uh, among everyone. Like big companies that put their entire promotional budget on hold, uh, politicians who'd hoped to kind of pause bills and laws for until, you know, the new year, because World Cup final, Christmas. People, we, we were not philosophical and we were ready to... Um, well, the thing I heard over and over again from everywhere I went, corner shop to, you know, work gatherings was, we are not ready. I'm not prepared to be out of the World Cup by Saturday afternoon. And to be honest, watching them play, certainly for the first half, it it felt like the players were ready to be out of the World Cup by today. And it was like, oh, but Messi had said in the week, don't panic people, stay calm. We're not gonna leave you for dead. Trust us, we will, we will carry you through. So it's huge, huge relief. And you can, you can kind of sense it. I mean, it's fun. You know, you hear chants, the same chants echoing around the streets in the suburbs out of windows. Um, but, it, but it was really close. And I think, you know, well, you all saw what I did. It wasn't, it wasn't really compelling. I mean, I think for the neutrals, it wasn't like, wow, what quality football this is. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I had it down, Marcelo, as a kind of a 12A, moderate violence. But it but it shouldn't be dwelt shouldn't be dwelt upon. That that's sort of what it was until Mild peril. Exactly. Until Lionel Messi, Marcelo. And I guess it always had to be, right? I mean, it feels silly to say that because it didn't have to be, but it was.
3: Well, I think, I mean, it yes, it it was, but I don't think it had to be. I think it was perfectly possible that it could have been someone else. And indeed, and so came in the young guy you know i've been saying all week we need the younger kids in there and and uh, i think that will be an unforgettable moment for him because he's ever so young he just came in and scored and lifted us out but one nil was okay but the second goal was like fantastic and i think there's a lot of um i mean i if i was part of the of the technical team rather than the emotional contingent i would I would think quite hard about what went on in that game, and I, and perhaps a lot of the substitutions were used too quickly. I think Otamendi was clearly like in trouble at the end, and there was just no option. I think Di Maria, possibly, um, I gather, like it, it, outside Argentina, he got quite a lot of uh, bad press, to put it one way. But you know, people here were going, "What are you, Di Maria? What's going on?" and I don't know. It's tricky. But as I say, it's become such a kind of passionate frenzy that there is like no room for that kind of um, uh, rhetoric right now. It's like, hurrah, Messi did it. Hurrah, Messi saved us again. Um, and that's what it's going to be for, for the next few days. I mean, it would be nice to think that they can build that team that won the Copa America and that there's other goal scorers, other you know, possibilities and other uh, playmaking to to happen. It wasn't a great game, I'm not going to lie. It's just a great result.
4: Uh, Marcella, since you mentioned you're in the emotional contingent, so to speak, (laughs) we've we've had quite a few questions from listeners throughout the evening. Uh, about wh- why is this team looking like this? Because we've seen, like, in the Copa America, they looked so much better. And in qualifiers, they've looked so much better. And 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 I guess what sprung to my mind, which I'd like to ask you about, is the pressure, surely, that's on them. Because they were kind of okay against Saudi until they went behind. And then they didn't seem to react very well at all, I thought. And they were really turgid and bad today. And I wonder if there's an element of the... The pressure on them essentially you know the the, it's messi's last chance and all of this sort of stuff is that something you think might be affecting them
3: i think that definitely we can't underestimate the pressure there is on them now and in a way um it's become almost enhanced you know it it, it's so much was riding on this notion that we were going to win the world cup and if the first match should have been sobering in fact it it wasn't, and it was like double the pressure because it felt like everybody was going to enter some kind of deep, deep depression. Um, and and you know, this poor Messi had to do something amazing. And it might not be win the World Cup, but but delight, you know. And so today it was kind of uglier football, as you say. I mean, the first game wasn't actually that bad; it was unlucky. I mean, I was hearing some stats that are completely new to me called. Expected goal aggregate or XG, <laughs> welcome, which was like zero point fourteen percent of the three shots of goal that the Saudis had. I don't know. It, it's it's odd. Today they were not relaxed. They didn't go in onto the pitch going, "Look, whatever happens, happens. This is about joy and love, and we're going to play a good game." They were tense, and I don't know if it's because they knew that Tata Martino knows them really well, or they'd seen they knew their own physical condition or something, or if it was just nerves. But it seems odd for what was the other stat, which was Argentina first country ever to field 4 34-year-olds in a World Cup. They're so veteran and experienced, why did they get the jibbas at this point? And I guess it's because they knew it it was a real possibility that today was going to be it. You know, it was World Cup over and you could tell that weighed on them, I think. I mean
2: yeah, Barry,
5: what did you make of it? Um, I thought it was poor, a poor game, but understandably so. If if I had been playing for Argentina, a they'd have been screwed, and b <laughs> um,
4: surprise selection I, I, by I, Scaloni there.
5: Yeah, I would have been a, an absolute nervous wreck, and I think it was quite obvious they were you know seriously under pressure when Messi scored the goal. The, Someone posted on Twitter a video of Pablo Aymar, who's on the coaching staff, and he—he he, he literally looked as if he was about to have a heart attack. He was hyperventilating, and his chest was heaving. He had his head in his hands, and yeah, I can't imagine what it's like to be under that kind of pressure. But once they got the goal, it didn't look like it was ever in doubt. And obviously, the longer it took them to get the goal, the, the more nervy they got. But they played with very little coherence. And I think Lyle Scaloni possibly overreacted by making five changes from the lineup against Saudi Arabia, which was a match in which they didn't actually play that bad. I know one of them was enforced by injury, but the rest, it did seem like a bit of a panic mood. That's not going to do much to instill confidence or ease any jitters. But. In terms of tension, yeah, it was fascinating, but the quality of football was understandably poor. The uh,
2: Philippe, the quality of Schitthausry was actually quite high, and, and there hasn't <laughs> been that much of it in this World Cup, hasn't there? But there's a lot of kicking people. There was a lot of clutching of faces and writhing, and I was absolutely here for every second of that.
0: So was I, but I was a bit disappointed because it seemed that it was going somewhere, mm. that we were going to apex three and then it kind of calmed down. Yeah, we needed we needed a red card, didn't we? In about the
2: fiftieth minute or something.
4: The, the ref, the referee, did too well. Really, I mean, what the referee needed to do was to annoy everyone by giving some cards nobody liked and really made people go crazy. But I thought he handled mm. the situation really well. Yes, or really badly, depending on which point of view you take for
0: that, because <laughs> it, the spectacle would have been immeasurably uh, improved by a uh, more shit houseery and a few more cards. But uh, I mean, it was so bad, it was was extraordinary uh, actually. Um, but yes, the, the shithouse we didn't quite go to the level we were we were hoping. but two things I mean, maybe they'd forgotten so much about their football. It was almost like watching teams suffering from football aphasia, right? They couldn't talk football anymore and to such an extent they didn't even know how to talk football shit housery anymore. Do you see what I mean, Max? Mm. It was that it was that bad. Yeah. But the way that um, this man—he—you—you you have to say—I—I I struggle for words because we are so used to exceptional things from him that I don't think we quite realize what it is for that man to be able to deliver in such circumstances. When literally, we're talking the pressure on the Argentinian team. Well, all of the pressure is on him mm. and he's, he manages to do it. And by the way, I wanted to ask you, Marcela, because there, you, you hear some noise about the fact that he's not fully fit. I mean, is, is it the case or is he actually OK and it's just people being paranoid and so forth?
3: Well, it's hard to know because there's uh, like an endless stream of rumour emanating all the time. Um, there is very much a kind of voice that comes periodically saying, stop it, everybody. He's absolutely fine. <laughs> like just a,
2: just a voice that just comes out like a tannoy, like across the whole of Argentina.
3: <laughs> Although, you know, the, I, I don't know, envoys, but... Um, I think they look tired. I think they, a lot of them look tired. I mean, I don't know about fully fit. I know Scaloni does these incredibly uh, tough tests and makes sure they can all endure them. And if they can't, they get sent home. It's well, not now, obviously, but, you know, um, I don't know. That's what I was saying. I, I think they need to think a lot about who's up to this and how many minutes should they play. Maybe now that you have so many changes, it's better to stagger and... I would save some players for like defining moments towards the end of games rather than make them run around in 90 minutes. And the other thing I don't know, which I'd be really interested in knowing is how hot is it for these guys? Like, have the players said what it feels like in this? Because I heard the kind of air conditioning goes to about the height of the highest header, but it's quite humid heat, isn't it, out there? These guys were looking very sweaty and worn out. I mean, both sides. And um, so what do we mean by fully fit? I mean, it's right on the tails of a of a busy season. It's such an odd World Cup in that respect. But as I say, the voices. He's absolutely fine. Don't ever question this ever again, because I think in a way it would just be Maradonic if like suddenly we didn't have. our, You know, great knight in shining armour fully fit it was like if he had to leave because of a swollen ankle or something that would be almost worse than getting knocked out on the pitch in a fair fight
2: I like the idea that um the air conditioning goes up to the you know most people's net so Kiefer Moore's head is sweating and everyone else is totally fine <laughs> this Courtois the top of his head is just gone sorry Philippe you wanted to come in
0: No, no, no. It's just it conjured the image that I've just seen of uh, Neymar's foot, which is absolutely horrible if you see it. Um, I've seen worse. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Sorry, (laughs) Lars. I was a bit slow on the take here. (laughs) Yes, you're quite right. Absolutely. Let's move on from there, I suppose. Yes, well, there was one great question
2: from um, Jumeir. There was a point to saying, have we finally hit the tipping point? It was before Messi had scored, by the way. He said, if we finally hit the tipping point where before a no mark hit a worldie, we would say if Messi had done that, we'd be going mad. Now we've got Messi hitting shit shots, and we're saying if anyone else had hit that, we'd be saying it was shit. But that has always been one of the
4: dumbest <laughs> saying in all of football, which is a very hotly contested category. The whole because the literal opposite is true. Like we don't like rave about these incredible goals because Messi has scored so freaking many of them. Whereas we go obviously over the top because it has more of a surprise value when it's a random, unexpected player. So it's not even not just an annoying saying it's literally the opposite of what actually happens yet people keep saying it it really makes my head you know yeah if leonel
0: messi had scored a goal like enzo fernandez what would people have said mm.
3: <laughs> i did think enzo fernandez's goal was amazing i have to say i don't know what people would say if messi had scored it but it's it was a just such a delightful goal and such a wonderful thing to say to to have a young kid go on to a pitch that was had that level of tension and stress and nerves amongst the others and be able to do that i you know i just think he's going to go well first he's going to go high up in the estimation of people's hearts and secondly he's going to go up in his market value and that's uh, another aspect of the world cup that we shouldn't ignore at any point
2: Poland atop top with four points Argentina have three Saudi Arabia have three Mexico have one.
3: I think Mexico are going home. I don't see how they could do it, but the yeah, the other three we're in. So we've got a few more days of, uh of you know just not knowing what's going to happen and sitting on the edge of our seats. But um, it's good. It's this is what it's about, isn't it? Like we're still in there.
2: Yeah, that's the key. Um, uh, Marcella, thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate your time as always.
3: It's lovely to see you all. Until next time.
2: Until next time. Absolutely. Until the Poland game uh, uh, out in uh, Buenos Aires. Uh, quick word on Mexico, Philippe. They weren't up to much. Well, I mean, they, a lot of teams are missing a, a real key ban up front and it felt the same for them.
0: Yeah, um, that's been the case ever since uh, Raul Jiménez was injured. you remember when we were previewing the group? And on this one, at least, we were not completely wrong, um, which is the fact that they would find it extremely difficult. Uh Tata Martino is going to field, I mean, Im- unbelievable criticism back home. Uh, people were already quite annoyed by the fact that he'd left out of his squad a number of young, promising players. He decided to stick um, with what he knew best. And um, the the lack of uh, of imagination in that team is just extraordinary. Um, I have to say that I, I cannot quite comprehend how a country a football country as large and mexico which has got as amazing resources probably one of the most competitive uh, leagues as well on in america north central and south america it's a really good league can produce as mediocre a team as that i'm absolutely flabbergasted very sad i have to say they still have the best shirt, but they—you know—that's that's not that's beyond the beside the point. Uh, so then
2: Poland two Saudi Arabia nil. Um, uh, it's a great atmosphere here. I was felt like a home game for the Saudis. I, I wonder, Barry? Do you, I sort of feel Poland somehow nicked this, but also kind of deserved it in a funny kind of way? Um, yeah, I mean Saudi Arabia were all over them
5: in the first half. Absolutely monstered them. Um, They had a huge crowd behind them, obviously. Uh, It was quite intense game from the start. Saudis were ramping up the pressure. Uh, They were targeting Matty Cash down that wing and he was getting very little assistance from any of his teammates. And Poland were doing their old trick of just any time they got the ball, lumping it long to Lewandowski, who was very isolated up front again. But... um, Poland got a, go- a goal very much against the run of play, a uh, cash cross for, for Lewandowski. And he he had a pullback for Zielinski, who who just roofed it. Then Saudi Arabia missed a penalty. And the guy who taken it looked terrified. I think he was new to the job. Uh, I'm not sure he'd taken many before. I don't think he'd, he certainly wasn't. Uh... It wasn't Ivan Tony, was he? No, no. He, he, he. The last time I saw fear like that in a man's eyes as he stepped up to take an important penalty was Mickey Gray in that famous championship <laughs> playoff final. And you just knew <laughs> he, he ain't scoring. Um, so, yeah, Wajir Szczesny uh, saved and saved the follow-up. Salam Eldasari was your man's name. And then uh, Lewandowski got his World Cup goal finally and all his teammates piled on top of him. So, yeah, I, I suppose that's a fair assessment. Saudi Arabia were bossing the game, but just couldn't score. And they could have been way ahead by half time, but um, Poland probably did deserve it in the end. Saudi Arabia had 13 shots, didn't score. And uh, in their previous
2: game against Argentina, they had three shots and scored two. I um, should mention, Lars, Wojciech Szczesny, it's not just a penalty save, but to get up that quickly is amazing.
4: Yeah, he's 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 matured into a good keeper, Chesney. He's not the sort of uh, error-prone lunatic he was for a little while in his youth. He's he's a very solid goalkeeper.
0: I would say he, he hasn't always been the most solid of goalkeepers. One thing which is a specialty of Chesney is double saves. It's not the first one in his career, and there's one that's st- had stuck in my mind, which is against Liverpool, um, when I think Luis Suarez bought a penalty uh, so against Arsenal. And Dirk Coit, who was not a bad penalty taker, by the way, took it. And if you look at it, I wouldn't say it's a carbon copy of uh, what happened against Saudi Arabia, but not very far from it. Diving to his right and then getting up unbelievably quickly to uh, put the uh, to put the ball over the over the bar and uh, so he's and I think he's he's done another double save as well I think he he enjoys this kind of thing look it's interesting isn't it Lars I mean Lewandowski what a wonderful footballer his
2: 77th international goal equaling Pele but um, like people always talk about how he doesn't get any service uh, Mm. for Poland he really got some service which he
4: really doesn't (laughs)
2: No, no, but he really did for this goal, yeah, didn't he? But, but it really, like, the joy of the, that he had and the joy of his teammates and all that was actually really wonderful to see.
4: But, of course, that will have been a weight off his mind because there will have always been, like, however many club goals he scored and trophies he scored, there will always have been, like, smart-arses going, oh, you never scored the World Cup, did you? Uh, so, I mean, it's just a relief for him to do that, of course. And I'm sure he feels a, a heck of a lot of responsibility for this team as well. So, I mean, there will have been a release of tension Inherent there, I think the kind of the story of this game again. Saudi Arabia played well, I thought, but part of the story is just in the identity of the goal scorers uh, because you've got the first goal scored by Piotr Zielinski, who's the sort of the playmaker for the team that's top of Serie A, and the second goal scored by Lewandowski, who's the top scorer in La Liga, right? And when you have quality like that on the pitch. No, it's not going to work every time. But you will occasionally win games, even though the opponents are are playing better than you, because you'll probably need fewer chances to score. And and uh, yeah, they they got there in the end. And I suppose it's interesting. Barry mentioned it. The Saudi team being on the the other end uh, of it, because they they did have three shots in total against Argentina, of which two went in. Which isn't the kind of thing that happens every week. So uh, so yeah, uh, a bit of the the swing and indeed the roundabout for them.
2: Um, uh, Here's a lovely thing. Paul McInnes, uh, uh, who's out there, was on the pod yesterday, was interviewing uh, female Saudi fans uh, who uh, were at the game, came across someone called Mariam Mashikis. Uh, um, uh, Have a listen to uh, his chat with her.
4: And so what do you think a female football fan can bring to the crowd that a man can't? (laughs)
3: Civility. <laughs> fantastic um,
0: Well, females are needed everywhere. Yes, we're well, 50% of our yes. country, more
3: than 50% of our country, right? Yes. She's an engineer. I'm a doctor. So we're already participating in our country. Fantastic. And it would be amazing that we can also participate in rooting for our country
0: in the World Cup and to attend while they are on a winning streak, inshallah. And hopefully they <laughs> win and they have a very big chance to be the first qualifier to the. The 16th
3: round. It's just you have no idea. This is the greatest day of my life.
4: Fantastic, guys! Thank you so much for your time. Good luck. Enjoy. Which, which, uh, the Guardian, Guardian.
3: London. I listen to your podcast.
4: I'm on the podcast, Paul McKinnis.
3: I was on the podcast last night. Podcast every day. Wow! Wow! Wow. that's Amazing.
2: Uh, so very nice, uh, Mariam. Uh, uh, hello to you. If you're still listening to the pod, I presume you're listening if you were listening to the last few. Uh, uh, you are very welcome to the Football Weekly family. And uh, well done to Paul for for tracking her down. David says, on a slightly different note, what secret jobs do the panel think the managers of the various teams do in their spare time? The Poland manager is clearly a detective superintendent with a challenging case <laughs> to solve. Herb Renard sells do- dodgy aftershave. <laughs> um, I actually had the I had the Poland gaffer as a, as a bank manager. I don't think he looks detective enough. I think he looks very of all the man of all the managers in the World Cup. he's the most bank manager World cup. I don't know if anyone has any advances or any other thoughts of any other managers in this tournament.
4: Uh, Her Renard feels to me like some sort of um, corporate motivational speaker who gets brought in to sort of pep people up. Okay, you you send the leadership group off on a seminar and they, they hear Her Renard saying, oh, you have to work out and do it and all this. And everyone comes back uh, sort of slightly underwhelmed by the whole experience.
5: I'd have had Irv down as a kind of an Indiana Jones type. Not impossible. Yeah, it could be. Putting on his, his hat and his satchel and galloping off cross-country. I don't know, across the Congo or one of many African countries which he's, whose football team he has also managed while... Oh, um, you think the football's a front? Looking uh, for right he- no. hidden treasure <laughs> and stuff. Art,
2: artifacts. Artifacts, as Ian Holloway would say. Uh, uh, all right, that'll do, and we'll be back in a second.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, you get 30, you get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? Sold! Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
6: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier.
2: Okay, then Group D looks like this. France uh, played 2-1-2, two, two. they're through. Australia played 2-1-1, uh, lost 1. And both Denmark and Tunisia played 2, drawn 1 and lost 1. So it is it all in Australia's hands in that final game against Denmark. We'll talk about their victory over Tunisia in a second. But before that, France 2 Denmark 1. Uh, Philippe, a good football match.
0: <laughs> yes, uh, a decent football uh, football match between two teams that you think are pretty serious customers. And in which was uh, we had another proof that, uh, incredibly enough, if you've got the best uh, attackers, you score goals. And if you score goals, you win games. That's about as sophisticated as my analysis is at this point. Um, I, I have to say, it didn't start in the most um, auspicious of fashions because to get a Mexican wave after, I think, 6 minutes, 30 seconds.
4: It's, uh, I mean, really. That, that was bad, Lars. There's obviously a lot of bad stuff around this tournament, but they've gone too far now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: But after that, I think Didier Deschamps in particular will have many reasons to feel very, very satisfied indeed with the, the day's work. And um, there are a few things which should inspire him confidence. I mean, it's not just the fact that Kylian Mbappé is Kylian Mbappé is Kylian Mbappé, if I can <laughs> <laughs> if I can say something. Uh, but it's also the fact that quite a few of his key players are seem to be in very, very fine shape indeed. I mean... I'm surprised by how good Dembele has been since the Mm. beginning of the tournament because he was one of my big question marks. And I have to say, and I'd like to talk about this at greater length perhaps, but I I really love what Griezmann is doing Mm. with his team at the moment. When you think where he's coming from because of his contractual situation, he's not playing as much as he should or how he should be in his club. And what we're seeing is a Griezmann that we're not used to see. It's a new Griezmann uh, in a far more withdrawn a position where he can really orchestrate the game, and he's superb at that. And honestly, and the two goals were were simply phew, stupendous. Which one was your your favorite, by the way? Because the first one is you know the one to one two, with uh, Hernandez is great, but the second one, that cross is just unstoppable, and um, and. Beppe's movement as well is just stupendous as well.
2: Barry, which was your
5: favourite? The first one. Okay. I'm quite confident I'd have scored the second one if I'd had (laughs) a little bit more of a head start. Um, (laughs) I mean, he sided in from literally an inch out. (laughs) But yeah, the the run when he saw Griezmann pick up the ball and was about to cross was just brilliant. He made a fool of... um, I think it was Rasmus Christensen just stole in behind him at great
4: speed. Uh, I'm, yeah, I'm looking. I'm actually looking at Griezmann's touch map now for this game, and he's just really all over the place, but in a good way. I mean, there's really all, he's been involved in almost every part of the field, and he's clearly playing a lot deeper. I think that makes a lot of sense uh, in a few, for a few reasons. First of all, being uh, the absence of Pogba, which means you need to think a little bit more about how you progress the ball up the field. And there's also if you're gonna play four-two-three-one with Dembele and Mbappe on each wing, you know none of those guys are gonna defend much. So you really do need another player from that attacking unit to drop deep and contribute more in midfield, free up the 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 deeper midfielders to go wide to help out maybe. And and really, I think this was in the run up to one of the cha- it might have been in the run up to the second goal. I noticed. Uh, that that Giroud had also come come deep. Giroud actually dropped in quite a lot and helped out defensively. So so there's so some interesting things happening with how this team is is composed. And and I think this is something that's worth bringing up. I mean, we mentioned the first goal. Theo Hernandez, okay, he has some defensive vulnerabilities. Fine, I accept that. But but I think I, I think he offers this team so much more going forward uh, compared to to Luca Hernandez. And of course. It's very sad for him to get a very bad injury in the first game of the World Cup. This is, you know, not being flippant about that, but, but but I do wonder if this could actually be a slight sort of blessing in disguise for France because he gives them a bit of offensive thrust and width on that side that they probably wouldn't have had otherwise.
2: So, so we're saying Griezmann sort of dropping back is a more successful version of Wayne Rooney, sort of dropping back and becoming the quarterback in that successful England. Was that successful? I don't remember that period so well, but is that what he's doing? He's gone from sort of he was never like up top, up top, wasn't he? He was always slightly withdrawn and now he's really withdrawn.
0: Well, usually, I mean, people have long thought that the best role for Griezmann when he was playing as a nine and a half or as part of the front two slightly behind so that it would be the Giro Griezmann or Benzema Griezmann and it works very well. He's also played sometimes on on the left-hand side. He's played on the right-hand side, but I've never seen him playing in such a withdrawn role before. and. His defensive work is absolutely stupendous. He probably did the, I think the tackle of the tournament uh 15th minute against Arms Guard. One of those absolutely magnificently timed tackle where you actually recover the ball as well as get your opponent the away, right? That's the
2: that's the tackle, isn't it? That's, Just that's yeah, the but, but a,
0: a sliding one as well yeah, okay. which was a, th- a thing of absolute beauty and also showed how uh, alert he was to danger absolutely everywhere. And that was one of the questions that we had before the World Cup is that without Pogba's ability to direct the play from deep, what are we going to do? And it seems that Deschamps, much as I hate saying that, has found a solution. And uh, I've got yet more humble pie uh, to eat today, but not on the Danish goal, because the Danish goal just proved the truth of a certain maxim, which is quite known in those... Look,
2: Rabiot was out of position for that goal, but I don't know what you think, Barry. I thought he played well again. I'm watching Rabiot, and now because of Philippe, I kind of want Rabiot <laughs> to be a huge success. <laughs> yeah.
5: Yeah, I thought he played well. I thought he played well in the first game. He played well in this game. Um, he channeled his inner Richarlison and almost scored a wonderful scissors kick, which I really wish had gone in. Yeah, I'd me love too. i to seen the look on Philippe's face. <laughs> and... Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm kind of wondering now. You know, the, he's done it for two games in a row. Is that is that consistent enough, or does it have to be? You know, all the way up to and including the final.
4: And I have seen. I mean, this isn't completely coming out of nothing. There have been sort of little signs in his performances for Juventus this season that that maybe he's becoming a little bit more useful than he has been. So, uh, so yeah, it's 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 time for Rabiot, Philippe. Time for Rabiot. Unfortunately, it was not time uh, for my sweet prince Olivier Giroud, who had a bit of a bad one up front. Uh, though I, I still I still believe in him. I, I'm still a a a, no, a a big Giroud stan, and I think you know he. I'm going to stick with this for a while longer. I honestly think that France are not worse off with him up front instead of Benzema, just because I think the the balance of that front line is much better, even if it didn't always look like that today.
2: From a Danish perspective, Barry, you sort of think, look, France had the majority possession. I think the stats came up at one point and France had like 15 shots and Denmark had had two. But actually, once they get that equalizer, they had a couple of great chances to take the lead. And, and, you know, given the way the fixtures go, like the, the pressure on them now to win their last game is obviously huge. They probably still should do it. But they actually had a chance to win this match. Did they? Well, they did. I mean they like it was one one and they had a couple of good chances. They didn't the they hit the post and they had one that went straight at larisse I mean it would have been it would have been smashing grab, but they had their they had their chances, I thought. But that's Denmark, isn't
5: it? They they're toothless, pretty toothless up front. I mean, if you put any one of France's top four, you know, Dembele, mm-hmm. Griezmann, Mbappé mm-hmm. or Giroux in that Danish team. Because, you know, they have Andreas Cornelius, meh, Bar- Martin Brathwaite, meh, Kasper Dahl- Dahlberg, meh. And you just look at them and, and they're all they're they're quite a good side up to a point, And that point is the business end of the pitch where you
2: need a goal poacher. Kylian Mbappe now has uh, as many World Cup goals as Messi, more than Thierry Henry. And I, I don't know what the what's the, what's the question to that, Philippe? I mean, he's really just sensational, isn't he?
0: Yes, uh, he he looks actually super super sharp. He's usually super sharp, but he looks super super sharp. And it at at one point actually was very funny in the second half. I think who is it? Is it Christensen? Maybe it's Christensen. Maybe it's not. Who cares? But anyway, some Danish player. Apologies. Uh, there's a ball which is sent in the sort of on the on the left flank, and the Danish player has got about three. He's three yards up beyond Mbappe. But the guy actually gives up because he knows that Mbappe is going to get to the ball faster. So what he does instead, which actually, by the way, is quite smart, is that he positions himself for where he should be when Mbappe has got the ball. Because we know, he knows that over those you know, first two yards, but also first five yards. And to be honest, first 15 yards or 30 is just uh, impossible to, to deal with. And also, he, I think his decision making has been absolutely terrific. Since the beginning of the competition, because that's what people were thinking could be a bit of a problem—that uh, he would try to do too much—and uh, that's not the case. And the best example of this, and what is really uh, very heartening, is the uh, the relationship is starting to build with with Hernandez on the left side, you know, which was exemplified by this double one-two, which is just a thing of absolute beauty, pure football. So yes, he's uh, he's flying at the moment. That's what there's three goals for him now. How many is he going to end up with? I mean, how many goals is he going to end up with France? It's just ridiculous.
2: Thirty international goals for Mbappé. He's only 23 years old.
0: Max, it's 31 goals for Kylian, not 30.
2: 30. Oh well, well, done. Has
0: he just and- scored again? Is that what I just
2: <laughs> <laughs> so much injury time and he's got another one? He,
0: he he's actually so quick, he's already played, he's already scored in the next game, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so he's on. he's now on thirty-one. Equal with Zizou. And he's just gone past two very big players, Just Fontaine, of course, and Jean-Pierre Papin, who were were on 30. And um, he's currently as well, he's scoring uh, 0.48 goals uh, per game, which is a better rate than Olivier Giroud and uh, Thierry Henry. Uh, but not, and and Karim, and Karim Benzema. Right.
2: Producer Silas has just updated the script to say 31, and so it's too late now. Silas, isn't it? I said 30, yes, Lars?
4: Well, on this game, just to reiterate, I mean, Barry said it already, but oh my God, Denmark would be so much better if they had a good forward. I mean, there, and, and there were two crosses in particular that were just perfect crosses. It was just put in, in exactly the area where you want... You know, too close, too, you know, the defender can't get to it too far. for the goal. And there's just no one there. And it was one in each half. So it wasn't just to do with Cornelius being the problem. And actually, the Norwegian national team coach, Stola Solbakken, who has a big connection to Denmark because he managed FC Copenhagen for many years, has has joked ahead of the tournament that if Denmark had Erling Holland up front, they'd win the World Cup, which I think is an entirely fair shout because there's so much good about how they move the ball uh, and, and all that sort of stuff. They're so well drilled there's just no one up there, and it's, it's remarkable. I mean, you have all these, all often the hipsters. They will do this sort of "What if the Yugoslavian countries were still Yugoslavia? All the players they would have. We should do this with the Nordics. I mean like you could just just chuck uh, allen Holland, and Kulusevski into this Denmark team, and you know watch it uh, watch it go. It would be tremendous. Yeah, we had that,
2: we had that question from Astrell saying how great would Denmark be if Norway hadn't left the union in 1814? Uh, exactly
4: right, and also get the- <laughs> oh, that's great. That's a great one. They'd be a lot richer as well. I'm just doing that one. Charlie
2: says, uh, on the subject of Olivier Giroud, is the comment that Giroud is not that easy on the eye, something that Max is prepared to fall out with Ali McCoist over? Or would he need to besmirch Fernando Llorente for that to happen? Yes, absolutely. All my love for Ali McCoist gone in one simple sentence. Uh, I'm that fickle. What, what, what did he say? I think he was talking about Giroud as a, a footballer. And saying he's not that easy on the eye, and I actually disagree with that anyway because I think he is really easy, and I think his touch is really delightful. But obviously, Olivier Giroud is easy on the eye, quite literally, isn't he? I interviewed him once, and it was a sensation. Just his hair was just absolutely astonishing. I think I asked him about it, I, and he was very polite, thinking, "Who is this complete idiot?" You know, asking me. Well, I'm here to talk about the FA Cup final. Smells nice as well. Yeah. Well, I do. I don't. I don't remember him smelling that. I, whenever people talk about footballers smelling nice I think we did a phone in once on the radio about you know footballers you'd smelt and somebody somebody messaged us to say they were they'd flown to Milan for a business meeting and they walked into a cafe and Alessandro Del Piero was there and he had so much cologne on they got a migraine and they couldn't go to the business meeting (laughs) Let's go to the Socceroos. Um, They beat Tunisia 1-0, their first win at a World Cup since 2010, their first clean sheet since 1974, only their third win ever uh, at the World Cup. Dave says, has Mrs Rushton's World Cup fever been kicked up a notch? Um, She didn't know the result until about five hours after it had finished. Um, So we won't get her thoughts, but we will get the thoughts of uh, Emma Kemp from Guardian Australia, who was at the ground. She joins us now. Hey, Emma.
6: Hello. How are you going?
2: I'm good. Uh, How was that?
6: Oh, it was insane. I mean, in terms of actual football, it probably wasn't one for the purists because it was just a complete scrap. It was probably anarchy for <laughs> for at least most of the second half. But I mean, look, I'm still kind of in disbelief that Australia won that match. To be honest, you just you read out all the stats then. But being in the ground, I mean, it was it was just kind of crazy just because of all the Tunisian fans and all the noise that they make, and um, it was it was deafening.
2: Um, I- explain what a victory at the world cup means to australian football fans
6: i don't know if you've seen that video of federation square in yeah, melbourne it's
2: amazing isn't it
6: oh it was it's um it's quite something it's just thousands i mean there were pyrotechnics and everything and actually we showed that video to jackson irvine the Socceroos midfielder after the match and he was um you know he was a fan back in the day he was in kaiserslautern when Australia beat Japan at the 2006 World Cup, and he was just kind of lost for words. He was like, "Oh, you know, I wish, I wish I was there, but also it's quite good being here as well." And (laughs) I'm not quite sure, (laughs) but it it it, actually it means a lot, and I'm genuinely pleased for them. You know, 12 years is a really long time not to win a World Cup match when you've been at each tournament throughout that period, and I'm I'm actually really pleased for Graham Arnold as well because he's a really divisive figure back home. You know. He gets a lot of criticism, um, some of which is warranted, but you know, he's also done a lot for player development. He took charge of the under-23s team and transitioned several of those into the senior team, and, and the players all play for him.
2: Um, the thing that I've noticed about moving to Australia, and the thing that I totally took for granted in the UK, is, is look, football is the number one sport here, right? So you get everything. You get all the shiny things. You get all the coverage. You get all the shows. You get shows before the game, after the game, you know, all around. And... And what I think is fascinating about what football means to Australian football fans is that you are a minority sport there, right? And and it's obviously it's huge participation sport, maybe the biggest. But like it means fans, it means like a victory for this like feels so important because every time that happens, and it was on at a really good time of day in Australia, and so it was kind of prime time. And and actually, you know, it's only the third ever win at a World Cup, right? It means so much because. Quite a lot of the time, I think, football fans in Australia, and we've got loads of listeners in Australia, are kind of, I wouldn't say feeding off scraps. I think some of the Australian broadcasting is sensational. I yeah. may be biased. But do you, does, does, does that make sense?
6: It makes perfect sense. You know, the Australian football um, bubble is, is very small in Australia. It's very niche. And, and like you said, it sits behind AFL, sits behind the NRL cricket. It's probably behind rugby as well. But, you know, every four years, when the World Cup rolls round, everyone gets behind their national team. That's how it works. And everyone has those memories from 2006 and from 2010. Um, and they might not know the names of the players. I'm pretty sure a lot of them haven't heard of Mitchell Duke before. Um, probably not Harry Sutar either, to be fair. But but everyone, everyone does just get up for the occasion.
2: I mean, the last sort of 15 minutes, I was texting a few of my Aussie mates going, you're going to hate if there's 15 minutes of injury time here. And there wasn't, fortunately. But even still, that is a stressful, you know, the last 20 minutes were stressful. There? And actually defending, sort of heroic defending.
6: Very good defending. And I'll say um, much improved defending on that against France a few days earlier. Um, but I don't know how many saves Matt Ryan made, but he made a lot of saves. And he was just throwing himself through bodies in the box and, you know, Harry Suter, all two metres of him, he was throwing himself about as well and he, he made this crunching like tackle at one point that, were, you know, it denied Tunisia an equaliser um, and it, it was just superb from him, you know. He's a, only in his third match back after an ACL injury, which uh, is quite something. But those those final minutes were not only going to ruin my match report um if if the score had changed but you know it was also just gonna sound
2: like Jonathan Wilson
6: (laughs) oh dear (laughs) (laughs) it's just like sort of bleeding hearts of the nation you know if it hadn't have happened so I'm I'm relieved and I'm breathing again finally
2: and and given the results it's in your hands which is probably I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing
6: oh you should never put anything into Australian football's hands because they'll they'll just eat themselves um, but but France have beaten Denmark I've just seen it's full time now so um, yeah. that actually does make things very interesting in the final match
2: totally um, well listen Emma thanks so much for coming on uh, if you get through we'll get you on again hear some joyous uh, Australian reporting but thanks for your time we appreciate it
6: brilliant thanks Max Emma Kemp there from Guardian
2: Australia. Kyle says, from Australian, is it coming home? If so, does the panel think the Jules Rimet trophy will survive the long-haul flight to Sydney? I, I really enjoyed this game, Barry, but perhaps because I have a bit of skin in the game. But it felt kind of end-to-end, and that kind of classic last-ditch heroic defending and possible counters, and just Australians hurling themselves at Tunisian, Tunisians all the time to just keep that 1-0 lead. Yeah, I think someone should tell that Australian listener that they
5: know they're not playing for the Jews who made Trophy <laughs> anymore. Um, get, get with the program, you flaming Gala, brilliant goal from Australia, and arguably sort of created and scored by two of the most Australian-sounding Australians in existence, in Mitchell Duke and and Riley McGree, um, <laughs> but. Yeah, I really enjoyed this game. I mean, it was more or less a home game for Tunisia, who had a huge uh, contingent of fans at the game. It was a brilliant goal. I thought the header was absolutely fantastic. And Duke had a wonderful touch in the build-up as well. So he sort of started and finished the move. His near-post run and uh, just a great header to score with. Uh, I thought... The Tunisia striker Issam Jabali looked really isolated up front in a way that reminded me of Robert Lewandowski in Poland's first game and the early stages of Poland's uh, second game today, which I presume we'll get to at some stage. And I think the standout player for me in this game was was Harry Suter in the heart of Australia's defence, who was absolutely immense and... I thought he had a good game against France as well in very difficult circumstances. I think this is only his third game back from a year out with a cruciate injury.
2: And that's just remarkable yeah. considering how well he played today. Dean says Harry Suter needs at least 30 minutes dedicated to him on this pod. Louis says, does Australia have enough bronze to build the Harry Suter statue? Um, His game by numbers, 100% of tackles won, 100% of ground duels won, 50 touches, six clearances, five long balls completed, three blocks uh, two out of three aerial jewels, one one last man tackle. I mean, he was brilliant last, and sort of epitomised what Australia were in this game.
4: This is roughly the size and shape of Uluru as well, which obviously helps. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Maybe instead of building a statue, just sort of say that this is now the statue. And then that, that could be a thing. No he, was, no, he was he was he was very very good and. Uh, I, I'm it's one of those where I'm so happy to be wrong because I've been a little bit dismissive on other platforms uh, about the this Australia team because obviously on paper, you know, it doesn't look that great in terms of where the players play and, and the level and all of this, but that's what the World Cup's all about. The World the World Cup is massively about uh, a, a guy who normally plays in the second tier in Japan scoring a brilliant header and and you know taking his team very close to possibly progressing and giving like that sort of moment is is totally what the tournament's about for me
2: um andrew says do you give the socceroos a chance against the most overrated charcoal dark horses in history denmark <laughs> i mean i think lars obviously denmark are favorites for this game yeah but you know there will be a massive australian bus yeah the, the oz experience you know the backpacker bus they will park that because they need a point
4: and listen denmark are a better team on paper and all this but with the aforementioned striking problems you can totally imagine a world in which denmark has like 25 shots but doesn't score any of them and uh, and and uh, australia springs some kind of surprise yeah i don't think that's impossible at all uh, I, I i really don't because i'm just not there's so much to like about the charcoal horses but the ability to put, to put the ball into the goal seems to be an issue right now and uh, and that that can be a big problem in the football if you're not able to do it
2: i have really spelled this out australia need a point to get through. But, Barry, Tunisia are not totally out of this.
4: No.
5: um, If they beat France, they'll have four points. If Denmark beat Australia, they will also have four points. So it will then come down to goal difference. So, I mean, it is unlikely that uh, Tunisia beat France, but France are already through. So
2: who knows what could happen. True. I mean, it's good when both games have something riding on it and you need two tellies. And actually, you do need two tellies because... Both the BBC iPlayer and ITV Hub are so far behind, aren't they? That that you know, if you watch one on the telly and one on the on the iPlayer, you'll know what has happened. It'll be sort of twenty minutes behind. Um, but anyway, uh, uh, it's worth watching both those games, and we will do that. And we'll talk about the monopod in a week or so, I guess. All right, that'll do for part two. Part three is a very very short. Any other business? Welcome to part three. Probably the shortest part we're ever going to do because we've talked too much about the football. Um, uh, Nathan says, with the resumption of the Premier League now less than a month away, what are the panel's thoughts on Brentford v Spurs? Um, (laughs) Well, we we won't get there (laughs) quite yet, but it was the FA Cup second round today. Um, A one-all draw for Gillingham at Dagenham and Redbridge. Um, Just to get a Gillingham mention, let's not talk about Cambridge United letting in a last-minute winner for Grimsby at home. We're not on a good run at the moment Alex says this is the elite lineup. more alo alo chat obviously is Philippe <laughs> even aware of its existence
0: yes I am I'm to be honest uh, alo alo is René isn't it
2: it is René yeah. yes
0: okay um, you stupid woman and uh, we are the buddies aren't we that's alo that's allo, alo as well yeah that's quite funny actually uh,
2: is it a fair reflection of French life would you say <laughs> uh,
0: probably um as seen through an English lens, probably, yes. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that you, I, I could get very offended and uh, about the whole show and ask for the cancellation and for it never to be shown on television again. In fact, for all the original video films uh, to be put in a bonfire and destroyed. But in fact, I, I, I think as a, it's a very interesting... Um, it's a piece of evidence as to what the the British thought about the French at a particular time in their history, isn't it, Max? It's not at all a caricature of Frenchmen, no. really, isn't it? I mean, I no, say, not it. at
2: all. I must say, when I watched it, I was quite—I didn't—I wasn't really thinking about—I wasn't thinking about geopolitics. I find I have to think about geopolitics more than I ever really thought I was going to have to. You know, there yeah. were times yeah. when I was just paid to dress up as a penguin.
4: <laughs> really. Uh, well, you know, and amongst other things. It was it was surprisingly big in Norway. Was it? Yes. because I And mean, this is something I found really strange with, with living in the Wait, UK. Your
0: country is very strange because there are loads of Blackburn Rovers fans in Norway. as Well, well I mean, things I mean, like
4: that. Obviously, why wouldn't there be? But it's more a case of I mean, when it comes to media and culture, it's some things get exported and some things don't so going back to like my youth in the 90s when we didn't have that many tv stations and you know the internet wasn't a thing and, you know it was limited what we were actually exposed to in terms of foreign culture you were kind of at the mercy of what the, the, they decided to bring over and it was a really it's really weird to me how some parts of british popular culture from that era i know very well like Allo Allo, and some things are just a complete dead zone because it wasn't brought over uh but Allo Allo was uh, very much a thing
2: I hope it was dubbed i'd like a Norwegian. no that's the key we, do, we, we, do, we, do, we, do, we don't we don't we don't dub tree. anything which is why no.
4: like quite most scandinavians speak decent english almost all scandinavians because we don't dub anything so
2: uh, anyway i feel like we've sort of come to a natural end of this <laughs> particular podcast um thank you lars thank you max thanks philly
0: thank you Max.
2: thanks barry you're welcome um football weekly was produced by silas gray our executive producer is max sanderson we'll be back tomorrow